Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? So glad to be with you once again here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I just always look forward to the time that we have together because I have been thoroughly enjoying learning more about Jesus as we explore the Gospels. I hope you've been blessed. I hope you've been sharing this with your friends. And by the way, as I record Podcast 84 right now in the studio, two great things to mention. Number one, that to date we have had over 300,000 plays in our podcast. That is incredible. So thank you guys for listening, sharing, uh, staying with me as we go through the chronological teaching of the Gospels. Again, our plan here is to continue to go through the rest of the Bible. So we'll continue through the book of Acts and the Pauline epistles and things like that. The second thing to tell you about is that we also have a podcast called I Will Stand Strong. And I've recorded several episodes with my good friends, David and Jason Benham, the Benham brothers. And right now on iHeartRadio, you can also access that. I think it's also Google Play and different platforms. And that's kind of a culture engaging podcast. We talk about like hot topics and issues that are going on and how we as Christians can stand strong. So check those things out. So today, remember, it's kind of a part two from where we left off last time. And if you've been following along in last in podcast 83, we jumped in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 17, Luke 18. So this is a really big chunk of information right now. So I felt best that we would just kind of take it slowly, do two different parts on it. Because the way that I constructed it is there are seven key lessons. So in podcast 83, the first lesson we talked about according to Luke 17 with the 10 lepers was about giving praise to God. The second lesson, according to Luke 17, 20 through 37, when Jesus was describing his return, is we as followers of Christ need to be anticipating his coming. That puts things in perspective when we have a eternal perspective. The third lesson was about seeking God in everything. We saw that with the parable of the unjust judge and the widow, she was relentless. She was audacious. She did not care one bit about her being repetitive, her constantly wearing this judge out because she wanted justice and he gave in. And Jesus uses that as an example using this parable, remember, of the unjust judge and this widow as an example of prayer. And so hopefully we learned that we need to be more persistent in our prayers. And now we pick things up in Luke 18, 9 through 14, where we'll talk about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the lesson here is that we need to humble ourselves before God. That is key. So this is the fourth lesson of seven as we continue here now in Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted, literally who relied or they, they were convinced in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That literally just means they despise others as worthless. So there's an audience. And that's why Jesus is going to teach this parable 
because they were relying on themselves to be righteous and they looked at everybody else as worthless. So what does Jesus decide to teach about? He decides to teach about humility. And remember, if you go back, he's been teaching them about praising the Lord, anticipating his coming, seeking him diligently. Now, in order to do all that, you need to possess a posture of humility. You need to have a dependency towards God that's greater than the dependency that you have in yourself. This is something that Jesus had talked about in Luke 11, 39 through 54. So now in verse 10, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, what's interesting is that in that time, they would oftentimes, that is the rabbis, they would share comparisons to point out what was righteous. And so, of course, they would use the model of a Pharisee to say, this is righteous. And then they would pick on a tax collector to point out sin. Now, what Jesus does, though, is he reverses the comparison. He says, here you have a self-righteous person, a prideful individual. It's a Pharisee. And over here, you have a tax collector. And this is going to represent the repentant sinner. So in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself, literally in Greek, he took his place ostentatiously to be seen, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So here's what's interesting is that although standing was still a very common posture for Jewish prayers, this Pharisee, he's standing in such a way that he's showing off to everyone how good he is. So clearly his approach is not one of humility. He is not praying to God. He is literally praying to himself. And that's something that you and I have to think about as Jesus is putting out this parable is the main attraction, if you will, of prayer that, you know, that, that prayer is all about is God. And the Pharisees were supposed to be the model of how to pray. But the Pharisee was so fixated on his own self-righteousness and the sin of others that he failed to what? To notice or to recognize his own sin. His motivation was not seeking for God's provision, but rather notice as he opened up his prayer, it was to seek out the approval of others as his compensation. One commentator writes, a soliloquy with his own soul, a complacent recital of his own virtues for his own self-satisfaction, not fellowship with God, though he addresses God, end quote. Verse 12 says, I fast twice a day. I give tithes of all that I get. So you see, as the, as the Pharisee continues to quote unquote, pray to God, he's praising himself to God for doing what the written law had required. You see, according to Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 31, the law required a fast at least once a year on the day of atonement. Now, if a person sought special favor, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And this Pharisee is even boasting about going beyond that and even tithing on little things according to Deuteronomy 14 and Matthew 23, 23. One commentary says this, particularly devout Jews fasted without water on Mondays and Thursdays. Later, Christians seeking to avoid their example fasted instead on Wednesdays and Fridays. Pharisees were known to be meticulous in tithing on agricultural produce. So rigorous were they that if they could not be certain that farmers had already tithed the produce, Pharisees would tithe it again, end quote. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Literally in Greek, it's showing that an act of mourning uh, posture. So again, 
the posture of the Pharisee is very prideful. He's standing up to God, if you will. This man can even look to the heavens and he's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this tax collector, this publican, he recognized his need of forgiveness and he sought God in humility for mercy. He came with no preconceived notions, just the simple fact that God is merciful and that he cannot attain righteousness, which of course is a total contrast to the Pharisee. Now, it's an interesting thing to note that, remember, when this tax collector is praying, remember, he's in the court of the Gentiles. They're ostracized by the Jews. Now, this Pharisee had greater access, meaning he was in closer proximity to the Holy of Holies, if you will. That just shows you how arrogant, how they felt like they had a right to talk to God. So this tax collector who was ostracized and looked down is probably one of the worst professions and people to be in that time they're thinking you don't you're not even worthy enough to come before god and you even think that you can pray to god that he's going to hear your prayers this is ridiculous so just think about him feeling that way when he comes now verse 14 says i tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted so you see, Jesus is referring back to an Old Testament principle that was contrasting the proud and the humble. You see this in Isaiah 2, verses 11 through 12 and Ezekiel 21, verse 26. So by Jesus declaring a publican to be more righteous than a Pharisee, that would certainly have shocked the crowd. And it was a huge insult to the rabbis and of course to the class themselves, the Pharisees. So the, the fourth lesson is one of humility. And notice this in context to how you and I approach the Lord, which now leads to lesson number five. It's about trusting in God. And we see this when the children come to Jesus. This is found in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 19, 13 through 15, Mark 10, 13 through 16, Luke 18, 15 through 17. So in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, it reads, and they were bringing for dedication children infants to preteens, to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. Literally, the disciples, when the kids were coming, their parents were bringing these children. Remember, babies were told, all the way up to preteens. They were scolding the people and denouncing them. Now, remember, as we're looking through these different lessons, we just talked about the Pharisee. We just talked about humility. And Jesus had referred and will continue to refer to children as an example of the kingdom of heaven about humility. And here these children are coming for dedication for God to touch them, to bless them. And the disciples are rebuking them. So as they were coming for a blessing, the disciples were cursing them basically, not probably in profanity, but they were saying, don't come to him like this. Now, this was an ancient practice we see in Genesis 48. And the other thing that's interesting is that the disciples respond with this disapproval, similar to how Elisha's disciple did in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 27. And it was a way to kind of remove the people because they felt like they were bothering Jesus. But notice in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. It literally means he judged what they did as wrong. So Jesus turns and literally scolds them for rebuking these people. And he says, he calls to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder, literally do not prevent them. 
for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So Jesus points out that these children are important and rebuked his disciples for neglecting to see their innocence. This is cool because this incident is reflective of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They were looking at this tax collector. Remember, he was in the court of the Gentiles, removed from the Jews. You're not good enough. So a lot of the Gentiles who'd come into the temple, they would mock them and think, God doesn't listen to your prayers because you're not one of us. And they were always scolding these people. So the disciples were kind of carrying that on. And Jesus says, no, I receive them. Just like the tax collector who came with a broken heart and with repentance, I received him. He left justified. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What Jesus is saying here is one must have a childlike faith in God. See, that's where we get that phrase from uh, is, is right here in this passage. A lot of times people are looking specifically for this phrase, a childlike faith. But it more or less just comes from this incident. So just like a child who trusts in his or her father, so too must God's children trust in him for their every need. One commentary writes, God's kingdom is not gained by human achievement or merit, it must be received as God's gift through simple trust by those who acknowledge their inability to gain it in any other way, end quote. So then verse 16 says, and he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus shows what true love and what true tender care looks like by blessing these children of different ages and their families. And what a great example this was for the disciples. Now we enter lesson six, and this is about living for God. And we see this with the rich young ruler. This is found in Matthew 19, 16 through 27, Mark 10, 17 through 27, and Luke 18, 18 through 27. And as always, you can check out my notes, go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast, and we have our study guides there available for every podcast. Because what I'm doing here, because the Synoptic Gospels continue to talk about these different lessons uh, what I've done is I list them in a chart, like in a column. There's three columns. And I highlight where they differ, not in contradiction, but just that one adds a little bit more detail maybe where the other doesn't. And what you do then is you take these three narratives, these stories, these three different accounts, and you put them together. So that's what I'm going to do for you right now. And that's what I usually do when we're going through this chronological teaching is I take the three stories in this case and I kind of put them together, kind of make it a whole story. So for example, in Mark 10, verse 17, it says, and as Jesus was setting out on his journey, literally he was hitting the road, a man, but Luke 18, verse 18 says, he was a Sanhedrin ruler, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit? Literally to receive, to gain possession of eternal life. So as Jesus was leaving the house in Berea, according to Mark 10, verse 10, a ruler from the Sanhedrin runs to, to catch up to him as he was leaving, right? But what's interesting is that in the culture, the rich and the highly religious people, they were the standard to God, just like we saw the Pharisee and the tax collector. It was a Pharisee who was justified, not the tax collector, but Jesus reverses it. And then this last lesson we saw when the children were coming to be blessed and dedicated to Jesus, the disciples said no, and they're scolding him saying, leave him alone. Jesus says, no, let them come to me. And now what we see is as Jesus is leaving, here is a Sanhedrin ruler, a rich man, 
is running to Jesus. That is uncharacteristic. And not only that, but to see a rich man run in anticipation to a poor and uneducated person like Jesus, because that's how they viewed him. So this rich ruler approaching Jesus, this is giving us insight. And the, the reason he's running to Jesus is because he wants to ask Jesus a question, a very penetrating one, and is about obtaining eternal life. However, another thing that was uncharacteristic or I should say unnatural is that very question because the rich ruler must believe Jesus possessed something unique. Otherwise, he would never have asked him the question about obtaining eternal life. Nowhere in the Talmud, by the way, do we ever see rabbis addressing one another as good teacher. The reason being is because that terminology, that title is only reserved for God. In Psalm 25, verse 8, Psalm 106, verse 1. Now Luke 18, 19 through 21, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this isn't a denial of deity. Jesus is simply probing the young man to reveal his inner beliefs and his needs. Verse 20, you know, meaning you possess information about the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So what's interesting is that Jesus is having this conversation with the Sanhedrin ruler. He refers to, notice, five of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 12 through 16, Deuteronomy 5, 16 through 20, as a way to refer to them all. However, he mentions the ones that have to do with man's relationship with others. So the reason Jesus is doing that, because if the ruler truly followed the first four commandments, then he would have believed Jesus to be the Messiah, but he didn't. And the one commandment, if you were following along as Jesus was quoting them, what is the one that he omits? Covetousness. And that was the very sin that caused this young ruler not to believe Jesus because he was wealthy. He chose wealth, which was an idol, over God. So he wasn't truly worshiping God because he ultimately worshiped himself, just like the Pharisee. So in one fell swoop, Jesus' questioning exposed the ruler's lack of knowledge of God and his disobedience to the Ten Commandments. So notice in Matthew 19, verse 20, and the man says, teacher, all these things I've kept, meaning I've kept them under guard. I've, I've protected them. But what do I still lack? What do I fall short of? So if you notice how this young ruler failed to come with a childlike faith that we saw in Mark 10, verse 15, his attitude is more aligned to the Pharisee in the parable of Luke 18, 9 through 14. This phrase, what do I still lack? This question he's asking, he knew in his heart that he was in need of something. See, that's what happens, my friends, with religion. You try to be goody two-shoes, but you know that you can't atone for your own sin, that you still lack something, you're still empty inside. So he knew that just obeying some of the law was not enough. Luke 10, verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him, that's agape love for him, and said to him in Matthew 9, 21, if you would be perfect, meaning complete, Luke 18, 22 says, one thing you still lack, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So Jesus is saying, as he looked at him with love, if you want to be perfect, meaning if you want to be complete, 
If you don't want to lack anything, you need to go sell all that you that you possess. So rather than Jesus looking at him and says, do you believe that the law says not to covet? The ruler would have probably said yes. And he says, okay, well, do you follow that law? Perhaps maybe he would have lied. But instead, Jesus, is, he puts him to the test and says, sell everything. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that's what you lack. There is no investment in heaven like you think. So he exposes the man's covetousness and tells him to remove it by selling his possessions and to give to the poor. That was a measure to demonstrate love for others. It was a test. If he truly wanted to live for God, then he needed to stop worshiping materialism, according to Matthew 6, verse 24. Mark 10, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Luke 18, 23 tells us he was extremely rich. So the ruler wasn't sad to learn that his allegiance to God wasn't as good as he believed it to be. He left Jesus with sorrow because he pictured a life without his wealth. And that wasn't something he was willing to give up. And more importantly, he wasn't willing to give up his religiosity. You know what's interesting about this too is a side note, and I oftentimes don't hear a lot of people refer to this. The man left so sorrowful because I believed he knew that Jesus was more than just a rabbi, that he spoke truth. I mean, here he is face to face with God in the flesh. You don't think that that troubled the man? And he left Jesus for the world. But see, that's the thing is, when you look back in the Old Testament with King Saul, when he was sorrowful, he wasn't repentant. This man was very troubled by it, but he would rather fill his life, which again was leaving a void. He was still empty. He knew he still lacked something. He wasn't fully joyful and at peace, but he was willing to still say, you know what? I can't give it up. One commentator writes, the young ruler did not see himself as a condemned sinner before the holy God. He had a superficial view of the law of God for he measured obedience only by external actions and not by inward attitudes. As far as his actions were concerned, he was blameless, but his inward attitudes were not blameless because he was covetous. He may have kept some of the commandments, but the last commandment caught him. Thou shall not covet. Covetousness is a terrible sin. It is subtle and difficult to detect. And yet it can cause a person to break all the other commandments. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, according to 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, end quote. Now Mark 10, 23 through 27, and Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So remember, it was the belief that wealth equaled a special blessing of God. However, Jesus corrects that belief by teaching that blessing comes by obeying. It comes by depending on God and serving man. Those who have much wealth have a harder time living out the wealth of God spiritually because they have too many distractions and worries and idols and demands. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' contrast is a teaching with a camel, which was the largest animal in Palestine, trying to go through the eye of a needle, which is the smallest opening. 
It was a humorous illustration to make the point of impossibilities. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, then who can be saved? Notice the whole question from the beginning from the Sanhedrin ruler, this rich man, was how do I attain eternal life? And now the question is asked by the disciples, then who can be saved? And he looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What Jesus is saying here is salvation is impossible for man to achieve, but not for God because he is the author of it, Jonah 2 verse 9. So that is lesson six. Lesson seven now, and our final lesson in the podcast today is pursue the riches of God. So notice how this builds from the false riches, earthly riches, to spiritual ones. This is in Matthew 19, 27 through 30, Mark 10, 28 through 31, and Luke 18, 28 through 30. And it reads here in Matthew 19, then Peter said, begin to say literally and replied to Jesus. So as Jesus was talking, he began to talk over Jesus saying, see, we have left everything, our homes and followed you. What then will we have? Not what do we still lack, but notice what then will we have? So the disciples had left everything for Jesus. There was a there was a, a time with Peter when he says, be gone from me, Lord, I am a sinful man, depart from me. But now you fast forward and you're you're about two years in now with them with Jesus. And they they were a mark of a true follower of Christ. And my friends, through all of these lessons today, now with all their faults, with their prejudices, with their immaturity, with their pride, the disciples at this stage, they were showing a true mark of a true follower of Christ. They were not like this rich young ruler who was a standard, of course, member in that culture. Because notice what Jesus says to them in verse 28 of Matthew 19. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands with persecutions for my name's sake, for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So what Jesus is telling his disciples is that they will one day become rulers with him in his kingdom. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 21. And what Jesus is doing is he's shedding new light that service to him on earth will produce eternal riches to come. So my friends, as we conclude, as we looked in podcast 83 and here today in podcast 84, with these seven lessons, let's recap them. The first lesson was about giving praise to God. And so my challenge before you as your brother in Christ, are you praising him? How can you praise the Lord even more in your life? Lesson number two, Are you anticipating his coming? Don't get so fixated on earthly things, but look forward to the return of Christ. Lesson three, seek him. Be like the widow, be diligent. Don't take no for an answer, not in a selfish way, but with great humility and with great faith. Lesson number five, trust him. Be like a child, just depend on him, turn to him. He cares for you, he loves you. Lesson six, live for him. Don't say you're a follower of God and yet you are 
possessed with so many riches in the world that they become idols. Don't be like the rich young ruler. Don't follow religiosity. Don't just go through the emotions. Don't just go to church because you believe in it. Love him, be dedicated to him. And finally, pursue the riches of God. Don't let this world and the desires of it, don't let position or prestige or what man has to say be like the disciples who abandoned everything to fall after the Lord. And the Lord says, I will reward you for your obedience here on earth. So I pray that he's been a blessing to you. Thank you, my friends, for listening. Know that we're praying for you. And if you have any questions, you want to drop us a note or prayer request, info at standstrongministries.org is a way to reach out to us. So thank you for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.